This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Sarah Farrington about her new book, The Lost Conversation, Interviews with an Enduring Avant-Garde. Uh, Sarah, I really enjoyed this book. It's it's a collection of interviews with, I don't know how many, but you know, a couple of dozen of the most important figures in experimental theater from sort of the, I don't know, sixties to nineties generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's 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 mostly people. I don't know if you had a specific cutoff, but it's mostly people who are sort of, you know, sixty and above. Um, and it is and kind of, that was the cutoff. It was sixty. Oh. I I wanted to keep it at sixty five and up because yeah. that sort of falls into that generation. But I cheated here and there. There are a few yeah. a bit younger. I that's one of the one of the big um, impressions I had in the book is just kind of being amazed at you know how old some of these people were that I think of as I know you know the cutting edge theater artists of our day. And you know obviously you can be cutting edge and also be you know, of an advanced age, but it, it really made me realize, you know, how much um, of our kind of like, you know, experimental theater elders are, are getting up there, you know, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> yeah. I, I, one of my favorite things that Mac Wellman said, and I went to graduate school with him was that he never wrote a play he liked or that he considered was a good play until he was 40. And I, at, when I was in graduate school, I started graduate school when I was in 20, when I was 29, which at the time seemed old, but now I'm 42. So I'm like, that's young. But when he said that, I was like, oh, wow, that's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always looking for the emerging young. This I the plays I wrote when I was young were just I mean, it's all just training wheels for it's practice. It's getting good. Theater is a practice. So I completely understand where he's coming from there. And I think that. I think that there should, I, I so resent the term emerging artist and I so resent the support of young artists. And I know that's kind of taboo to say, mm-hmm. but once you have a lifetime of theater practice behind you, that's when you get good. If you're still doing it, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. There's this quote by Miles Davis that I think about all the time where he said, it takes a long time to sound like yourself. Oh I, my I God, to find your voice. Well. 
-hmm. Yeah, to find your voice and what you sound like, and then to be able to depart from what you sound like, to experiment with that. How can you do that if you just graduated from you know, wherever. I mean, yeah. I had no idea. I didn't even know how to format a resume for a year, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so w- you, was that at Brooklyn College? Yeah, I went to graduate school at Brooklyn College, which yeah. is sort of the the weirdos graduate school. The it's, great it's... <laughs> incubator of experimental work of the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, it seems like. It seems it like is. everybody in that scene went to Brooklyn. It, 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 well, it's Mac Wellman, you know, he's a, he, yeah. he, he's retired now, but he, um, he's Samuel Beckett. I mean, he is. And he does not try to fix what you do. He tries to take what you do and 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 make it what it is. I mean, there's no fixing there. And that's the big difference, I think, and why I love it so much. Yeah. And he it's it, I, I'm I think I'm remembering this correctly, that he requested that he be placed in the English department when he first started there because he had been at a school where the entire theater department had been dissolved. Is that right? Am I remembering? Well, yeah, that's in the interview. Yeah, it is odd because um, his playwriting MFA is in the English department of Brooklyn College. And they're actually, I mean, I haven't been, I haven't been back in grad school for a long time, but there, there isn't much interaction between the theater department and the playwriting department. Now that sounds odd because most graduate schools, I think all have interaction with the actors, the directors, they're building mm-hmm. plays, they're this and that. And I think, I, I, um, I guess, I, like I said, I wouldn't know any different. I kind of liked that. We were all sitting around a table with Mac, you know, working yeah. on these weird plays. And we weren't hemmed in by anything other than, than that. <laughs> and it was kind of amazing. And we all built work over that time. Um, I didn't yeah. work with any, I didn't work with any, I mean, what, and also what it encourages you to do is to get, you're in New York. So you, you do it, you go out and do it. You make a show, you find the actors, you know, you pay for it, which is hugely important to me. I'm not going to lean on a graduate acting or directing program to make a play. You got to get thrown into the shit. You got to get your boots on the ground and make mm-hmm. a play. And that's the attitude that comes, that is essentially boiled down to in this book, which is, I mean, if you want to innovate, you have to kind of do it yourself. Yeah. Let's talk about the book a little bit specifically. (laughs) Um, What was the kind of inspiration for this book? Where did the idea come from? Well, okay. I like to be like dead honest about where the idea came from. Great. (laughs) I was working on a, on a workshop of a new play of mine with my husband, who I have a theater company with, he was directing it. And we had a space for four weeks and it was in Jersey city and it was amazing. And from day one, everything kind of fell apart and it was a very avant-garde show. We lost actors. We had actors hustling us for more money. I just, there was a lot of no, there was a lot of why there was a lot of, I want to do method acting in an avant-garde environment, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. I would venture to say almost impossible. Mm -hmm. We had actors kind of get so methoded out that they sort of lost sense of themselves. And that was difficult. A lot of personalities. And I kind of lost my mind. I just was like, I am so angry. I am so frustrated. Um, I don't know why I'm still doing this. And that was one of the first times, I, th- I mean, it's the, the hardest that's ever hit me. I've certainly had discouraging rehearsal processes and stuff like that, but that was a hard one. And I kind of was like, I need to either stop this madness or it kind of crossed my mind. What would Foreman have done in this situation? What mm-hmm. would Charles Ludlum's not with us anymore, but what would he have done in this situation? What would, um, you know, Mac have done in this situation, Bill T. Jones. And I kept thinking like, these are guys that were doing weird stuff before I was born. And yeah. what would they do if someone thought they were 
um, Marlon Brando and showed up to rehearsal two hours late on purpose. Like, what would they do? So um, I talked to my friend Emily Devoti, who is a playwright. And at the time she was running the theater department, excuse me, the theater uh, section of the Brooklyn Rail. And I sort of laid it all out for her, what I was going through. I was kind of, you know, I'm prone to depression anyway, but it really triggered that in me. And she was like, well, let's do a series and let's ask them these questions. And that kind of opened up my mind. So I, I did a few of these interviews. I did two of these interviews for the Brooklyn Rail. And then I connected with 53rd State Press. And she, uh, Kate Kramer, who wound up being the editor, gave me the opportunity to interview whoever I wanted for as long as I wanted. And she published the book, which was incredible. But what the main driving force behind this book was, was the question, how? I did not want to ask them about their awards. I didn't want to ask them about what they were working on next. I didn't want to ask them really what inspires them. It was not about what, it was about how. How did you raise the money? How did you deal if a company member quit? How did you deal with having kids and being a parent? How did you pay people when you didn't have any money? These were questions I was like, I know how I'm dealing with this. Mm -hmm. At the time, it wasn't very well. (laughs) And I wanted to know how they dealt with it and that they were still doing it. And a lot of my criteria was that, you know, you, they're still doing it, how they dealt with those struggles in the 70s and 80s when no one had any money. Um, and I think that's the difference between this and any other theater anthology, which is that word, how. Mm-hmm. How did you go about selecting who you wanted to talk to? Is this sort of like a, a personal <laughs> canon for you or were you trying to be kind of representative of that? kind of the whole breadth of that generation? What was your kind of criteria for who you wanted to talk to? Well, I had a very, very long list. And it was <laughs> fortunately... It's not a short book, Sarah. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? It's not a short book. No, I know. It's, as, it's like you got to a lot of them. As Kate Kramer calls it, it's chunky. It's over 300 pages of this. So I, I had a very long list of people I wanted to talk to. In uh, I could have sworn none of them would want to talk to me. But fortunately, this crazy shit happened called COVID. And then all of a sudden, everybody was oddly available because a lot of shows got canceled, including some of mine. So I had this amazing fortuitous timing where suddenly I could talk to Bill T. Jones on the phone for like, he gave me like two hours. And I talked to Ping Chong for like an hour and a half. And And it was really who was willing to give me that time. And suddenly they had the time. And suddenly everybody is in this reflective sort of pensive time in their lives, Mm -hmm. which was COVID. Nobody was working uh, actively with other people. So it was essentially who I wanted to talk to. And then who was like, yeah, I'll talk to you. I don't know who you are, but I'll talk to you. Right. Um, I had a lot of people that weren't available. I had a lot of people that didn't want to talk to me. I had some that, you know, didn't write back necessarily. But um, when they said yes, I was like, this is amazing. And I'm going to ask you as honest questions as I'm what I really wanted to hear from these particular artists. And I should also say that because I'm the paranoid prep type person that I am, I prep for about three weeks prior to each interview, too. So I wanted to make sure that I had very informed questions um, and that I sounded (laughs) at least I was um, or sounded very prepped. So and then you you must have gone back and and edited the interviews for for length and clarity and stuff like that. What, What was that process like? Well, when you talk to someone and then you translate it verbatim, or sorry, you sort of um, transcribe Transcribe it verbatim, Mm -hmm. I find that very off-putting. I don't want to read people's ums and ahs. I just, um, some people find that very realistic and refreshing. I actually find it really distracting because uh, talking is a different medium than writing, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I purged a lot of the thinking. I purged a lot of the um, hemming and hawing. I purged some stuff that was sort of completely 
tangential to the conversation we were having. I purged a lot of, well, not a lot, but I purged a good amount of personal stuff that maybe they didn't want me to put in there. Um, that was important to me too. I made sure that every artist read the interview through and signed off and maybe added or clarified or took a lot out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to put anything in there that was a surprise and I did want it to have a narrative flow. So, um, you know, I, I bridged here and there, but for the most part, it's intact other than again, the ums and ahs and thinkings. I took all that out. Yeah. I remember reading an interview once with Angela Davis and the person who had done the interview was like really careful about including every little, um, and I've read that too. It's just w- what a, what a great way to make someone sound inarticulate. <laughs> And like, I know. You know, like anybody, you know, obviously Angela Davis is one of the great talkers of our time. And even even her, when you write down every little hesitation, it really just makes it unreadable. I, I, I agree, unless that's exactly what you're going for. Like if you're building a play right. in that way or if it's. Um, well, John Didion does that or did that. She's dead now. But she would when she wanted someone to sound dumb, she would quote them directly. That was her <laughs> one of her great tricks and there are companies like the civilians do stage interviews and and then you use that i mean those hems and haws certainly can mean something psychological it could even lead to movement moments you know but when you're reading it and when you're trying to hammer down exactly what i was trying to get at with everyone i just think it's distracting yeah yeah and and i think you did a great job making the interviews very readable and and you know and fun fun to read as well yeah i'm glad i had had a great time reading the book um, who were you kind of most nervous about interviewing? <laughs> Richard Foreman. <laughs> you didn't have to think that. about that at all. <laughs> no, I was very nervous because I love him mm-hmm. and he embodies everything. His work is, uh, there will never, there has never been and there will never be another person that makes work like that, another artist that makes work like that. And he, he for me, invented um, I don't even know if he invented everything because I don't know if you can really lift and do what he did, what he does. And I was nervous because of that. I I think I did the most research on Foreman. I went to the, this is before COVID. It was like right at the time that COVID started, but I went to Lincoln Center, which has, I'd say, I don't know, maybe half of what he has there. Mm-hmm. And then Penn State has a library of everything of his. So I went and online and I went wow. and watched as much as I possibly could. And I love him. I, I love um, I love his uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, his he just he doesn't care what you think. And there's a great part in his interview where he was like, if someone was in the audience by the end of the show, when the house lights came up, then I knew the show was a success. And I'm yeah. like, you've changed the meter of success and failure for me in reading that. You know, that's incredible. That means you're doing it for you. And that's and and, it, and and there's really no other barometer. And I love that. And that, for me, really defines avant-garde in many yeah. different ways in the theater. So I, I was very nervous to talk to him. You can tell in the you can't tell in the you can't tell in the transcript of the book, but you can tell in my audio that I'm nervous. He seems very he comes off as being you know very gracious and, and easy to talk to in the book. I don't know if that's editing or if that's how, what he was like. He is. And he was. And I had no reason to be nervous, but I, I just wanted to make sure that I sounded trapped. Sure. <laughs> um, what you know, I think there's a I don't know, there's kind of another side to this, this kind of feeling, you know, I'm thinking about like the 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 like um, masthead of the little review, which, which said uh, we make no concession to the public taste, you know, this kind of like attitude of like, you know, we don't really care what you think about the work. You know, if you're still in your seat, that's a success. I I think that can read to some people as (laughs) 
uh, elitist. Um, totally. It's and, totally. It depends and, on who you want your audience to be. You know, like I right. talked to Bill T. Jones said he, uh, in his early days in the interview, he talks about how he wanted the audience to be other artists and that this is a, a stratosphere that you have to work to become a part of. Yeah. Whereas, and I completely understand that mindset. And I guess Foreman in a way could fall into that. Yeah. I, I would rather someone off the street come in and discover the avant-garde like I did. You know, I would rather show someone that might not know the other side of storytelling. You know, how did you had that happen? How did you discover avant-garde theater? Well, I was a Broadway kid for a uh-huh. very long time. I did not know that plays didn't have songs in them. I did not know that it could be done. I didn't know you could do a play that wasn't a million. This is when I was much younger. Yeah. And I trained to be an actor. I trained to be a musical theater singer. And I could. I was a mover. And I. that was what I wanted to do. I, went, I studied at um, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. I went to Connecticut College for performance. I, I studied at, in Stratford-upon-Avon with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Performance, performance. I was like, I was going to be a serious Broadway type. <sighs> And then I discovered the Wooster Group when I was mm-hmm. about 23 or 24. And I went to see a play of theirs called The Emperor Jones, which was by my favorite playwright at the time, Eugene O'Neill, who I always thought you had to stage in a dusty way. I had no idea you could do what you, they did with it. And it was like my time before seeing The Emperor Jones and my time after. I really didn't know you could take a play and just completely blow it up and fuck with it and do whatever you wanted with it. Sorry, that's my husband's computer going off there. I just didn't know. And I remember see, it's, a, it's an hour long show. It's an older show of theirs that they had redone at St. Anne's Warehouse. And I just was like, I need to be around this all the time. Mm-hmm. I need to make work like this. And I don't care if I have to work for free for them, which is what I ended up doing. Um, sorry, ended up working for free for them uh, as an intern for a year or more. Um, I just, it it, it, it it changed the course of how I had my uh, theater conditioning. You know, I like, I didn't know you could do that. And so from there I discovered everything else. Um, I don't know. I, in some ways I like, I like it all, but I just get bored very easily. And if it's not, if it could be a a TV show, TV has cornered the market in realism. So I don't know why it would be a play. If it could be a show, I don't know why it could be a I mean, why, why does it have to be a theater piece? That's where the avant-garde fits perfectly for me because we can take this medium and we can bend it and twist it and innovate and we could do whatever the fuck we want with it. It's more acceptable and understandable in visual art and music, I think. You kind of know it when you see it. But in theater, I think people very much want a beginning, middle, and end. And when you don't give it to them, it's, much, it's difficult to, for, you know, for the uh, average viewer to absorb. So it takes a little training and I hope that my book helps with that. Yeah. Um, if you can show someone a Magritte painting, like Jeffrey Jones mentions in his interview, who's a playwright, amazing playwright. If you can take a Magritte painting and explain it to someone, they'll understand that it's surreal. It's a painting. And we know Magritte and we know that he makes stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense to us, but we can accept it as surreal. We can take that same feeling and apply it to theater too. And that's where theater gets very exciting for me. So... I don't know if that answers your question, but totally, that's where totally. I, that's where I discovered it was from the Wooster group. And they, for me, like Foreman, they invented it all for me. Yeah. Um, I've only, I haven't seen too many shows by the Wooster group, but I, I saw their production of Brex, the mother uh-huh. that was up, I think last year. Um, yeah, that and was I, I canceled too, I think. Yeah. And I saw it, I saw it twice. I, I saw it once alone and then I brought a couple of friends to see it uh, again because I just thought it was 
just totally extraordinary and 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 actually like a very you know like a very careful and faithful production of the of the Brecht play I feel like I understood Brecht in a way that I hadn't before well that's the Um, amazing thing about them is you you can almost um take out when you do it the way you want to do it instead of the way it's traditionally been done I'm thinking of Chekhov their piece Brace Up like you remove the preciousness and the museum piece quality out of it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it becomes what it, I think really was uh, the three sisters, yeah. which is um, everyday people speaking in an everyday way. And suddenly it's accessible. Yeah. I don't know. I, I actually think doing a piece like the mother or doing brace up in a different way gives you a deeper understanding of it. And, and O'Neill too. I yeah. mean, oh yeah, definitely. O'Neill was cons- was quite a, a, an experimental playwright, in, you know, for 1915. He was. <laughs> oh, know. people don't realize that O'Neill was writing. He, he wrote a play called The Great God Brown, which is a sort of mask play where people t- t- uh, they they put on a mask to perform their outside feelings, and then they take off the mask to perform their inside feelings. Which is strange. Interlude is very much like that. Mm-hmm. He was a really experimental playwright in his day. For whatever reason, I don't know. Well, more and more people do O'Neill in a sort of fucked up way. So excuse my language, but yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, at, at, at one point, realism was avant garde. Right. You know, right. When when Chekhov and Ibsen were performing realistic style plays, people had been doing melodrama up until that point. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I kind of when you know when people talk about like the the great American realist playwrights, I kind of. I kind of always wonder, like, wait, who are you who actually who you're actually talking about? You know, know. Like, even Arthur Miller's not really, a, you know, Death of a Salesman's like a very weird play. It's it's not really a realist play at all, and a lot of Tennessee Williams stuff, you know, Glass Menagerie isn't really a realist play. It's this like, you know, there's like a character that it's just called the Gentleman Caller. He has no yeah. actual name because he doesn't really represent a sort of psychologically, yeah. you know, three dimensional character. He's just sort of like a force. Um, that's that's very strange, you know. I mean. Well, I don't know I think, that we have a realist tradition, really. I mean, at least in terms of what people think our, you know, realist drama is. Yeah. I I think with a lifespan of a playwright, that's why I think maybe young people should be less focused on ever so slightly, because over the course of a playwright's lifetime, they do get bored with what they do mm-hmm. and they do want to branch out. And I imagine O'Neill, tur- tormented as he was, got bored very easily with himself. I mean, Strange Interlude is the craziest play I, I i'm just thinking of the, the recent production with david greenspan that was just so amazing they, he did it by himself um i think it's very hard to hang on to realism if you've dedicated your life to this unusual art form of playwriting because it begins to feel very lazy you know as ann bogart mentioned there's um i can't remember who the quote she quoted uh, theater artist, and I can't remember who it was, but said realism is when you just can't be bothered. Right. <laughs> I'm just right. like, that's, that's a very reductive version of exactly it, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the things you talk about a lot uh, as well in the book is kind of the, the class dynamics of the avant-garde world. And, and, you know, people are very, you know, kind of surprisingly candid about the fact that a lot of these people, you know, for a combination of inherited wealth and, the rents of 1975 didn't really have to worry about money in the same way that you or I do today. Um, How do you, how did that kind of affect how you think about this whole tradition that it was this weird, you know, combination of economic factors that we're probably never really going to see again. I mean, New York was literally bankrupt when when this generation was kind of getting off the ground. I know it's a real 
it's, I mean, just because I'm a self-producing artist, I just know the money is what stops it. The money yeah. is what prevents you from, um, <laughs> I mean, now it is. Yeah. If it weren't, and if we could remove that obstacle, and if we could remove, like, you know, even thinking about theater as a career, as a means of survival, if we could remove all the stuff that keeps us down, we could make some crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, that's what, what for me, the difference between that generation and this generation, I, I think that they were like, it, it, it was a, a no holds barred kind of situation. I mean, I don't want to glorify it too much. And I certainly am sure that plenty of the artists in here were, I mean, they all, most of them had struggled with day jobs, you know, too. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, there are so many factors that will stop you from making the weird shit now. Um, I just know from experience. Uh, yeah. You just, you have to work. I mean, I, I, I need certain things. I need health insurance. I need to go to the doctor sometimes. I need to pay for my kids' <laughs> camp, you know, like, so it's, it's a really, really hard balance. And nowadays, doing a show for $100,000, I know, again, I know from experience, is totally normal. And expect it. For me, as an independent artist, I have to throw down, you know, 100K all told. Yeah, jeez. And that's sort of unheard of back in the 70s, I think. I wasn't there, obviously. <laughs> a lot of them were just like, oh, we never had anything to do with equity. Like, we just... I know. We, you know, we're like, we weren't... I'm sure that they were paying people you know, minuscule amounts, um, you know, to perform in those shows, which obviously, you know, gets gets sort of exploitative over time as the theater starts to accrue more money. But, you know, some of the people you talk to, like, like I don't remember who from the Rooster. Black Eyed Sue. Oh, okay. From yeah. Somebody who talked about, you know, we had to do a Kickstarter this year. And it's like... That, that was for the mother. That was for the Wooster Group's the mother. Yeah. You know, that's kind of crazy. Well, the fact that the Wooster Group isn't the American federal avant-garde theater company like right, European right. countries have the fact that they've been around for decades and decades and they aren't the national theater of the contemporary world, you know, that they have to do a Kickstarter is actually quite discouraging. Like, and that's because the U S doesn't prioritize the arts. It's not necessarily in our tradition to prioritize the arts. We certainly ha went through phases in this country where the arts were funded, but now they're not. And I don't foresee a time when they will be again. Mm -hmm. So Kickstarters become essential and private funding becomes essential. I just don't think the federal government is ever going to really step in again. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, in some ways it's freeing because like if a rich guy comes along and wants to fund your weird art, then there you go, you have it. But if that doesn't happen, you are in a very difficult place. Yeah. I don't want to draw, you know, I don't want to sound too uh, tinfoil hat about it, but you do start <laughs> to wonder that like the types of even like, you know, sort of political theater, the types of political critique that get put on stage do seem to have a relationship to the fact that, you know, the major off-Broadway theaters are funded by American Airlines or Bank of America or stuff like that. Like it's, well, it's a very narrow spectrum of like sort of political dissent that is allowed in contemporary theater as well. I mean, not just aesthetic. Um, but but I think there's a real chilling effect uh, on that sort of a model of, of privately funding art. It, it's um, yeah. It, it, Eduardo's Machado's interview, he and I yeah. went into that and there's just I mean, if you're going to use a nonprofit model, then um, I don't know, surely that shouldn't be treated like a profit business. It, it, it just can't work. Right. And it a lot of grievance will grow out of that. You know, I mean, call it a profit 
I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I don't run my own theater. I certainly have my own theater company, but I don't necessarily have the real estate. Mm-hmm. But it's really discouraging when a theater company is nonprofit and I can't afford to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really, really difficult. And David Henry Huang talks about that as well, that, you know, Joe Papp figured out that you could, as a quote unquote nonprofit theater, bring a show to Broadway and make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that kind of changed the whole game. Totally. Um, And now we have, you know, there are nonprofit theaters that have real estate on Broadway (laughs) that are, you know, producing, you know, shows where tickets are 150, you know, $200. I, I, I don't want to get on my high horse here, but why not? Hold on. Go ahead. That's what we're here for. (laughs) I, um... I think there's a fundamental rot there. And I think more and more artists talk about it. I cannot, I don't even think about being paid more than as a playwright. I mean, I've probably never gotten paid more than like, I don't know, a thousand or $1,200 tops to write a play. And this is, but then you look at the artistic directors taking home, I mean, at, at least six figures, sometimes an apartment when they're laid off. Like mm-hmm. it's so incongruous that at least be honest that that's the model now. <laughs> like, yeah, I, 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 it's very frustrating when the admin is getting more than the artistic, um, the artists. Uh, yeah. I, I talk a lot about that with Joanne Acolytus who struggled with that a lot uh, in the eighties when she was the artistic director at the public theater, because she really tried to build that communal model and it, didn't work. And I don't know if this country can sustain it. I feel like people forget that she was the artistic director at the yeah. public. I feel like people think, yeah, there was Joe Pop and then there was George C. Wolf, And it's like, wait, 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 that's not actually think, how, it, how it happened. I think it's a terrible thing what happened to her. I yeah. think she was artistic director, I think for two years and she wanted to build uh, childcare. She wanted to build a a, a, a world where there was no hierarchy in the theater. There's no artistic director necessarily. There's no people in the office that get paid more than the artist. There's no, like, I don't know how she felt about the board. I don't know if it was essential or not back then, but it was really a harmonious model that she built and the higher up systematically dismantled it. And it was a terrible thing for her that she went through. And I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for her. It's not my story to tell, but I do resent that uh, hearing about it. I resent hearing about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's been all these stories that have come out lately of, you know, people, artists in supposedly non-hierarchical institutions, you know, actually pushing for non-hierarchical decision-making and then they find out real quick who's actually in charge. And it turns exactly. out, the, you know, like the, the board can just decide we're going to shut this down and there's not a whole lot that we can do about that. And it's frustrating that you need a board because that's what a nonprofit model asks for. Mm-hmm. I think there are way like I've I worked at Here Arts Center for many years. They're one they're one of the ones that is amazing. They're run almost entirely by artists that are on the board and that are in artistic directing positions. Artists in those roles can really make that harmonious world work. I think I'm a very idealistic person, but I I, I do think that when you don't understand art and the artistic process and what artists need and the struggle in New York of even thinking about committing to this bizarre lifestyle. Mm-hmm we just become totally disposable, you know? Yeah. I, I want to ask you something, but I, I, um, I'm hesitant because one thing that you, that a lot of people in your book say is that they're annoyed when people ask about this. Um, but, uh, I want to talk to you about being a mother and also being an artist. Yeah. Because I love that's something talking that, about that. Okay, great. 
<laughs> I, I forget who, but somebody in your book is like, you know, they, they only ever ask the women artists, uh, you know, how the kids are doing. That's true. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I promise I'll ask a man this question soon. But um, <laughs> how has that affected your life as a working artist? And why was it important to kind of talk about that with a number of the artists that you interview? And also, I noticed that you kind of leave in, you know, there are times when your kids or somebody else's kids interrupt an interview. Yeah. And you will often, you know, you do a lot of editing, but you often leave those moments in. <laughs> why did you feel like it was important to you to kind of like highlight the kind of dual work of being an artist and being a parent? Because I don't think only lawyers and doctors should be allowed to have kids functionally. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's fair because what you wind up with is, you know, having a weird artist mom builds character in children, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I, I, Sarah rule had an, what I lean on in times of stress as a mother and an artist, which is you must work within the interruptions. She says that I think it's in one of her essay books. Her essay book Work. is so good. It's, yeah, yeah, a hundred essays I didn't have time to write. I think it's what that's it's where I got it from. I think. Yeah, just an extraordinarily insightful book. I was blown. I thought it would just be this like fun little read, and I was every page I was like highlighting, circling, texting my friends. Amazing. Totally book. agree. I totally yeah. agree. And and it uh, the interruptions should not necessarily. Uh, ruin you and stop the work from happening. And you just have to begin to be very, if you can, zen about your kids are going to interrupt you and you have to go with it. And I I don't love bringing kids to rehearsal, but as they get older and they can behave a little better, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's an incredible and unique experience to bring kids to rehearsal. As, as I, I struggle with it a lot when my kids were like under five, but now that one's almost 10 and one is in first grade, I... I I think for them to see the world outside of their little elementary school bubble and and see act, working actors working who are not celebrities, who uh, are doing this because they love it and being in a theater downtown. I mean, I never got any of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's essential that artists have kids and to make it work. Now, that is, again, an idealistic thing to say because most theaters do not have a budget line for childcare, And it's appalling. Mm-hmm. Theater should be for kids too. And I, Mabu Minds is a huge part of this book and they had kids in rehearsal all the time and they worked their kids into performances and it didn't become a weird, precious thing. It's gritty and it's real and it's part of the kids' lives. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, Lee says some willingly, some unwillingly. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And I, I went to Lee's um, tribute concert a few mm-hmm. weeks ago that Maude Mitchell and his family, his kids organized for him. And it was incredible. But all his kids who are adults now and their kids, some of whom are kids, were performing in this tribute to Lee. And it was so beautiful. It was, And they organized wow. it. Mm-hmm. it. It was just like you see that it was woven into their lives. Art is essential in a full rounded life. And I but it is difficult and it should be more supported in American theater. Mm hmm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I have a, a friend who's a wonderful artist, and her both of her parents are artists. And I think the probably the the most influential thing that they did was just they we, she would try to interrupt them when they were doing their work. They would say, you know, go go away you know, find some way to entertain yourself. Like I'm working right now. And that's how she started, you know, making her own stuff. It wasn't so much the example as just like the, you know, being a kid with a bunch of art supplies and being like, well, yeah. I guess I have to figure out something to do with the afternoon, you know? And the, the other cool thing is like, it's, it's cool for them to do like little, I had a show once, I don't know. I hope nobody noticed, but I had a, I, I had a kid in the booth once and he hit, he must've been five at the time and he hit the final cue, like just the blackout button, you know? Yeah. And that, that was like, I just remember that being a, a huge deal for me because he did that, you know, he, he, he made that happen. Yeah. Um, that was Jack Levi. My littlest was a baby, I think at the time. So, but it's just normal for them, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love, uh, that someone said, Bill T. Jones said in the book that it's an artist's job to be the freest person in society. Yeah. Um, what an amazing I know. idea. His I'm not sure great. I totally agree, but I think that's a beautiful thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of the things that people said that kind of stick in your mind? Oh, I wrote them down. I knew you were going to ask me that. Hold on. Uh, okay. The idea that Richard Foreman gave me, which I've always kind of felt, but never really been able to articulate, which was don't rely on the theater as your sole source of survival. That, that to me is what I've always done. I've had a day job nine to five for 20 years. I, I cannot look to theater to get me uh, paid. <laughs> I can't do it. It's just a, a reality. And so when he said the real innovative theater can come out of you not necessarily leaning on it, when you lean on it to pay your bills, you're going to make plays with couches in them all the time, you know, stuff people love, stuff people that is it's going to be instantly accessible. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not going to push the art form forward, in my opinion. The other thing was, um, I wrote down, Bill. Uh, oh, Bill T, Bill T. Jones said that he, he sort of labeled this young artist attitude now as millennial arrogance. It's a double-edged sword because you do want your artist to question the elders. You do want artists to bust up old forms. You do want that. But his other argument on that end is, you know, I was doing all this shit before you were born. <laughs> you know, you didn't invent, you didn't invent, um, you know, uh, right. running across stage naked. You know, you didn't invent kissing. He, he referenced some shows he did with Arnie Zane, his partner who died of AIDS. Uh yeah, his counter argument is I'm Bilty fucking Jones. Exactly. And like you can you can be your millennial arrogant self. Yeah. But if you show up late, I'm gonna have to throw a chair across the room. You know, I mean it's like it's like, you know, I'm saying that metaphorically. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's a it is sort of something to really think about. Like I'm sure he questioned his elders, and I'm sure those elders question their elders. They you are supposed to as an artist, but you also need to maybe sometimes recognize the genius in the room. Mm-hmm. you know, which he is. And you got to kind of respect that too. Yeah. Um, it is an interesting tension because I feel like, you know, respecting your elders is not the most avant-garde attitude. One 
you know, I mean, it's not, it's not what you think of when you think of, you know, groundbreaking artists, but, you know, if you don't know the tradition, it's hard to know what is innovative, you know, and I feel like that's a big goal of this book, it seems to me is to kind of let, you know, my generation and your generation know kind of what has come before us, you know, in some small way. I totally, um, Oh, I just lost my train of thought. You have to edit this part out because I had a point about that. Oh, the the definition of avant-garde theater, I mean, the sort of internet definition, is that it's unorthodox and it's probably not liked right away. Mm-hmm. You know, like w- when uh, when Picasso took out the figure, uh, people were like, where the fuck's the figure? They got really frustrated, you know, and, and, and that's how you start a movement when you do something totally unorthodox. So you're going to have to be that asshole millennial in order to do that. And you're going to have to make the elders question you. So it is a back and forth. It's a real double-edged sword, as I said before. So Another topic that you, you've mentioned a bit that comes up a lot in your interviews is the AIDS epidemic. And yeah. probably, you know, partially it was sort of front of mind for people because of COVID and the government's kind of similarly murderously negligent response to that. Um, and it, it really struck me reading your book that... I think a lot of the reason why there's so little historical memory from the 60s and 70s is just that so many of the people from that generation didn't make it through to the 90s. You know, the the real tragedy there, I, I actually didn't hit me till I worked on this book where I was yeah. like, it is so cruel that the talent that was Charles Ludlam is is not here anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 like gone. he's gone and his talent is gone. You know, we have what he did and we have his plays that are just incredible. But that that is uh, that is. And I mean, the narrative that is in Bill's uh, Bill T. Jones has a autobiography sort of artistic memoir that I read called The Last Night on Earth. And he tells the narrative of how he lost Arnie and like they had a theater company together and how it just wrecked these brilliant artistic collaborations and minds. And and you always felt like a trap door was going to fall beneath you at that time. I wasn't. I was, well, I was alive, but I was a child, so I don't necessarily relate or mm-hmm. remember it. But uh, the fear must have been incredible. Yeah. That was one thing, you know, kind of relating it back to COVID. That was one thing that Adrian Kennedy said in your interview with her that I thought was just so great, where she was, you know, you were sort of like, well, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm terrified all the time. Yeah. I just, I'm afraid I'm going to die every single day. And it was sort of this moment, you know, I feel like I'm starting a little bit, I'm still very cautious, but I'm starting a little bit to emerge out of the sort of psychological yeah. fog of COVID. But that first year, year and a half was, you know, really terrifying. You know, was, I think it was really scary. And I think we have to remember that, that like we were terrified and the government did essentially nothing. And, you know, we should still be, we should be, we should be forever angry about, about how they, you know, let a million people die. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think it's important that this book emerged out of COVID because yeah. those connections are very strong. Uh, it, it's a different pandemic and it, you know, it didn't necessarily decimate the artistic community. It decimated everyone, you know? Yeah, yeah. It had no... Um, but know, it, the, but gov- the, the artistic community in particular, I feel, yeah. you know, because it's... You know, pandemic spread when people are, you know, in close quarters and exchanging fluids and, you know, like these, these are all the things yeah. that, you know, people in the arts do more than people who, you know, go to an office job and come home and watch Netflix, you know. And and theater stopped for, yeah. I don't know, I don't even know, I 
I'm seeing a lot of theaters trying to like scrap around to get to where we were before COVID rather than inventing a new model, you know, and I just, it changed theater forever. Yeah. Um, And that's in there. I, I, I think that those two years, I wrote it over 2020 and 2021, um, and we have a sort of, we did a, Kate and I came up with this meter of ordering the book rather than putting it in chronological order. We ordered it by content sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we opened each interview with a, what was happening in the New York times in a nutshell, <laughs> um, that week that I did that interview and how that actually effect, affected the content. That's how we sort of ordered it. And it's really essential to see what was actually happening in the zeitgeist as I'm talking to these artists that sort of broke molds in the theater over the last, you know, since before the AIDS pandemic mm-hmm. and how it affects them now, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the interviews that I really loved in the book was your interview with Andre Gregory. Um, oh my God. I love that one. He's just an absolute delightful man. And I, I actually interviewed him on this podcast. So I oh, know a really? little bit about, yeah, I know a little bit about what it's like to talk to him. And one thing that I found really refreshing in your interview with him is just like the total lack of cynicism that he has, yeah. you know? Um, and, 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 you know, I, I don't want to name names, but that's not something that I, that I've read in all of the interviews in your book. There are some people who are sort of like, you know, everything that's interesting was done in my generation. And <laughs> why is everything so boring now that all the kids are making, but, you know, Andre seems <laughs> to be pretty hopeful about the future. Um, do you feel like you're more on, on his side of the fence or are you more, do you feel, do you look around and feel like, oh my God, this again? He's amazing. I am such a human. I I think um, the distilled version of what you just said happens in the opening of his interview, mm-hmm. which I I mean I just always assume that theater artists, especially ones that are doing things that are sort of off the mainstream, yeah, are just riddled with bitterness and contempt. You know, that's just how I I sort of have to fight that. I yeah. I'm I'm sort of by nature I can lean toward the dark side naturally. I have to work at positivity. But he I said you. Have you, I said, I wanted to talk to you about obstacles in the theater. And he goes, never had them. And yeah. I went, what? You've never had a, you've never had a, like a difficult actor. He goes, no, I haven't. And I'm like, uh-oh. in my head, I was like, this isn't where I can't do an interview where somebody's like not bitter. So then he went into what is the truth underneath that, mm-hmm. which is if there is that situation in an artistic process, then the buck stops with you. It's yeah. my fault. It's the director's fault. And it's my fault for not, generating an environment that is at least striving for ideal in the room. The buck stops here, as Harry Truman said. And he quotes that in the first page of my interview. So it is his take on the artistic process is so unique. And also that he stopped. This is astounding to me. And most artists, I don't think, could do this. But he stopped for 12 years. He had a series of firings. Um and he just was like, I can't do it. For And he just lived and went on these sort of wild adventures, which he goes into in My Dinner with Andre. Mm-hmm. But those 12 years were him growing the roots of the vegetable garden, you know? Yeah. He, he, he needed to grow as a human being. And those roots were digging into the soil as the top of him was experiencing life, you know? Yeah. And as, as a sort of panicky, constantly working if, or I, you know, I have this achievement delusion where I, if I'm not working and making something all the time, then it's all for shit. You know, he doesn't have that. And that mindset is really important, I think. And it helped me a lot to talk to him about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when I interviewed him, one of the things he said that really surprised me was that it was like really hard for him to get into character for my dinner with Andre. 
Yeah, which is weird. <laughs> and he was like, he was, you know, he was like, you know, it's all stuff that happened to me, but also that I'm playing a character in that thing. And and I sort of wondered talking to him, like, are you playing that character right now? You know, <laughs> I think I remember him saying he he had a hard time getting off book for it too, which is also like it's yeah. all his sort of memoir style accounts, and he's just like it was so much text in it, you know. So yeah, that's funny. Yeah, what a guy. Yeah, it's great. He's awesome. He's so easy to, it's cool that, it's just cool that he would talk to me, <laughs> you know? Right, right. That a lot of the, that all these artists were willing to be so honest um, about the how questions. Was anybody else, did anyone else surprise you? Were they? Was anybody else kind of not how you thought they would be when you talked to them? Um, that's a good question. You might have to take out this dead air. Hold on, I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, who was it? Who I, um... No, I, I didn't really know. I didn't because really, I didn't know. I mean, I knew, you know, I, I was in school with Mac. I knew Jeffrey Jones as well. I knew a lot of the artists just from my personal life. So I kind of mm-hmm. knew what to expect. In fact, if I didn't know them, I did a hell of a lot more prep because I, right. I didn't know what to expect, you know. Yeah. And I'm not an interviewer and I'm not a scholar and I'm not a, an academic in any way. I am so not an academic. I'm an artist. So I just wanted to talk to them artist to artist, you know, especially them being so much more ahead of me and so much more experienced than me that I don't know, it was sort of a humbling experience. I just wanted to listen to them and, and Mm. hear the struggle, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Do you personally feel optimistic about the state of theater or do you feel more pessimistic or is it, is it more complicated than that? Um, I don't know if I should give you my Sarah so positive and optimistic answer or my negative, normal, bleak Sarah answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, um, I feel if you're not willing to do your own work and you're not willing to finance your own work mm-hmm. and you're not willing to, um, work with people that are on the same plane, which are very difficult to find. Andre Gregory said that he's like, how many husbands have you had? I'm like one. He's like, mm-hmm. well, why do you think you're going to have like five directors that you like? Yeah. You know, it's not going to be that way. Your relationships with them are rare, you know? Right. So if you're not willing to do it yourself, I think that it's going to be a misery for you. Mm -hmm. It's just my experience. I certainly cannot speak for the artists that don't feel that. I mean, plenty of artists don't feel that way. But I mean, I have spent hundreds of thousands of my own dollars on my own work and not partially from grants and partially from Kickstarters and partially out of pocket. And I have a day job that pays okay that I couldn't live without. Um, So... If you can't do that, then the theater is very, very, very bleak for you. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, then the world is your oyster. That's mm-hmm. my philosophy, <laughs> I think. And a lot of artists aren't willing to do it. There are a lot of playwrights that are page to stage types. I don't understand that language. I, I can't write a play by myself. I have to work with some people that are like, what on earth are you doing here? Let's make this better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's Everybody's got their own way. I just, you know, I, I, I think if you're not willing to, be like fuck this i'm doing it myself then yeah it is bleak <laughs> and it seems like so many playwrights are kind of perpetually waiting for you know club thumb or the bushwick star or whoever to notice them and like pluck them out of obscurity and make them a sort of you know a uh, new play world star and that yeah. just seems like that just seems I don't know. My, my, my dad would always call the lottery a tax on people who can't do math. And that kind of <laughs> feels like that same mentality to me, you know? 
Well, I mean, I, like, I from someone from someone who's been rejected countless times myself. Right. I mean, I just got rejected today, this morning, which was fun. But uh, from stuff, from either money or programs or writing or whatever. If you're going to, it's the same thing as relying on uh, external forces for your own sense of happiness. I can't rely on somebody else to make me happy. It's an inside job. Mm -hmm. So like, if you're going to treat the theater that way, you're just going to be waiting. Like you say, you're going to be either waiting for money or you're going to be waiting for to be discovered, which is like the most toxic American Lana Turner myth there is. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen. So if you really, really want it, like Charles Ludlum started his own theater, nobody went up. I mean, I, I don't I don't know his whole biography. I've read it, but I don't know exactly what happened. But he was yeah. like, I need to do this. And if I don't do this, I'll die. I'm going to wait around for someone to give me a writer, writer's program that I probably won't really like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So I don't know. It'd be nice if someone gave me a million dollars or a half a million, maybe like a hundred thousand. Right. Somebody gave me that money like the government used to do. Yeah. Who was it? Was it Foreman who got $200,000 from the NEA or something like no, that? No, it was Mac. It was, it was Mac, Mac Wellman. Okay, well, yeah. Mac got, Mac that's lived on. insane. <laughs> oh, that's how. That would just never happen today. Like, I know. That's was... how the, the government used to be. They used to fund, the NEA used to fund artists. Like, that's what they did. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the NEA budget for theater is currently less, like not adjusted for inflation, just in real dollars. It's less than the Federal Theater Project budget in 1935. Jesus, really? Mm-hmm. Well, this is why I'm saying you want capitalism. <laughs> you want to live in a capitalistic society. Not really, but sure, go on. I mean, I definitely don't. I'd much rather not. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I ain't going to wait on the government to fund Right. It's just not going to happen. So, and Eduardo Machado was called the Grant King when he first started out because he got NEA grants every year, and he, the kid was like twenty one at the time. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't weird to get the, to to have that happen. And now it's like everybody's scrabbling for that one little taste, you know. Yeah. Well, you can separate yourself from all that by doing it yourself and being like, oh, somehow I got to raise the money. I want this to happen. I'll do it in a fucking backyard if I have to. I'm going to mm-hmm. do it, and I'm going to lower my. I'm going to. Be, it's going to be, you know, at times it will be humbling and at times people won't want to work for you because you can't pay them very much, but you got to do it yourself. And then the world is open to you, I think. Yeah, I got a I did a play last fall in a in the back of a bar in Red Hook and we got like a little ten thousand dollar covid grant and it was like life changing. It's like wow. suddenly we were able to just focus on rehearsal instead of having every meeting be how are we going to get this money? How are we going to get this money? How are we going to get this money? That is that is the oxygen that theater needs because yeah. it needs funding. And if, if you have $10,000 and everybody's getting paid a thousand bucks a week or whatever it is, I mean, imagine. Yeah. Now I think you should pay everyone. I think every actor should be paid all the time. These theaters, I don't have to name them. I think you know who I'm talking about that don't pay actors. Yeah. It's, it's obscene. So again, capitalism, pay people. They'll do good for you. <laughs> um, well, Sarah, I only have one last question, which is, are you are you working on anything these days? I know you're you know doing promotion for the book, but do you have any other kind of irons in the fire? Well, I um, my husband and I made my husband's Reed Farrington. He's a director. Over COVID, we wrote this amazing play about the January 6th insurrection. It almost came right after that. Uh, it, it's a sort of bizarre uh completely insane adaptation of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And we wanted to do a play version of it, but instead we we actually got the New Jersey State Council on the Arts grant to do that one, which was a nice juicy $20,000. I've never ever 
been more excited is when we got that and that funded not the play because we didn't want to have that. It was, it was early 2021 and we didn't want to do a play for 30 people and have that grant have supported it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, We wanted it to be huge. So we funded a film of that play. We made a real full length feature film of this play called Mendacity, where we have Lindsey Graham in the, um, Liz Taylor role from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Great. Well, I'll be I'll be hungrily awaiting uh, that release. <laughs> uh, Sarah Farrington, thank, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, Andy. This is really fun.